we desperately need a a religious narrative that takes us more toward something that is um, totally inexplicable, totally almost uh, impossible to imagine. And it's very, very difficult in our culture, in our society right now. We're too, we're, we're too, um, too much caught in the, the surface world. Hello and welcome to the Sacred Speaks. This is John Price. Today's participant is Kate Burns, and while I've known her um, for a bit of time, for a number of years, this project has kind of held me accountable to connecting with her book. I read Paths to Transformation before talking with her, and... um, Gosh, it was it was a uh, an important, really important book to read. I I I, I just had read, in, in, given that I'm kind of in that Jungian world, kind of the the idea of the path, or even you know rites of passage, is pretty. You know, it's talked about quite a bit, but her take on this was quite enlightening. So Kate, I'll just say a couple of words about Kate. She's a Jungian analyst. She's got an undergraduate, undergraduate degree in mathematics, worked as a geophysicist, and then later got an MBA from Rice, and then got a master's in counseling, and, and followed by a, um, a diploma at the International School of Analytical Psychology from Zurich, and has been teaching and lecturing and um, in private practice ever since. So I, I I strongly recommend I'm holding the book right now, Paths to Transformation from Initiation to Liberation. But you'll be able to hear from her in a sec. Um, process. So part, <laughs> when I was in music I, I in Boulder, we were on tour, and I went to uh, we were at this we went to play a pirate radio station in Boulder. This is twenty you know maybe eighteen years ago, and. Um, <laughs> listening to this episode made me think about that because part of part of the the value of technology is that I'm mobile. I can I can go to um, the natural habitat of the people that I'm interviewing, and I take advantage of that when I can. Some come to me, 
in, in my office. I go to others. Uh, and then we, I use Zoom for, um, uh, for, for video chats now. So th- there are options, but sometimes <laughs> there's a sacrifice to not being able to control for uh, other sounds, for, <laughs> for air conditioning, for, um, for all that. So maybe it's just my, my kind of music, my interest in music production that's speaking, but I just want to be, let you all know um, who are listening that, that that's kind of one of the things, you'll hear things throughout. Um, I do my best, but, um, but when you get, <laughs> when you're a guerrilla recorder, um, there's there's not much you can do about it. So, uh, yeah, that's that's that. Um, today, the the music that I'm presenting to you is from a woman named Lauren Fine, and uh, and our, our story is interesting. I walked into a venue years ago and saw her playing, and it stopped me in my tracks. I went over and bought a couple of shots of Jack Daniels and we uh we took a drink together <laughs> and talked about playing together and um I ended up connecting her with a community of folks that I'd I'd recorded with and uh and it was off and running and this is the album that came out of that and I I thought I just thought wow this is this is so cool and you know at the risk of outing Lauren she's She's gone on. She got a scholarship and um, is now a physician. Went to medical school at UPenn, and so she's one of those kind of Renaissance folks, where uh, brilliant and um, creative and fun to talk to. You heard honesty at the intro. Then I'm going to play a song. This this song you're about to hear is called Fighting Chance, and then we'll finish off the um the episode today with a song from her album Tin Can Telephone that came out about three or four years after her first album, Paper Airports. So I'll uh, let's play that song and then I'll come back in a sec um after the song's finished and uh, close it out and then we'll get started.
these songs are full of memories so anybody who's new to the podcast you can listen to other episodes and at the beginning of each episode I give explanation of process it's really as I'm kind of working through this process and making certain decisions about how this works but I'm I'm currently working to kind of streamline the beginning because I've already done a lot of that so I don't want to be repetitive the number is eight I'm gonna do eight minutes um, of an intro um, plus a song and uh, and that'll be my container for the this intro piece I, I couldn't help when I was listening to that song to think about the producers Todd and Toby Pipes and um, and all the musicians that played on it and I I just had a, a great time <laughs> listening to it and listening to all the little the Mellotron is the is one of the instruments that was featured in that song, and it <laughs> made me laugh about being in the studio. Uh, the studio was Bass Propulsion Laboratories. I spent a lot of time there. Um, and Todd and Toby worked with so many of the bands that I'll be moving into this project. Uh, the As far as bio's concerned, or any information about the participants, or the, the music, or... Uh, Really, I try to be thorough about the the website. I, I, I do my best to update it as much as possible. 
Um, but what I want to do is present any information on participants, links to their books and websites, the music that you hear. I want to put um, songs from the artists, links to their websites, and music videos. There's information and bios on everybody that I'm, I'm presenting. So if you have any questions, go to thesacredspeaks.com. And that's thesacredspeaks.com. And if there's something on there that's missing, email me and I'll, I'll work to, uh, to, to kind of make an addition. Um, what else? Yeah, check out. It's also on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, and the liking the whether it's on SoundCloud or Google Play or iTunes, liking the podcast, clicking like helps. It it makes it more findable. And I'm just well, I'm I'm just grateful for you listening. So thanks for listening. And uh, this is uh, I'm just having so much fun doing this. Okay, um, I think that's it. Is there anything else? No. I'll bring you Kate. We'll leave it there. Thanks. Um, would you just start by introducing yourself and letting us, uh, letting each of us, I'm going to adjust this real quick. Letting each of us know who you are. Yeah. Letting the both myself and the listeners know who you are. Well, my name is Kate Burns, and I I started my practice here in Houston. I started. I, I uh, did not pursue this life of, th of, of talking to people in a therapeutic situation until I was around 40. So I, it, it was a long journey and a lot, of, a lot of education and a lot of moving around, but I landed here in Houston and I started flying back and forth to Zurich to study. <clears throat> and in my in writing a thesis for my um, for my diploma, I I found the, the this book. It it uh, it's. Uh, it's a living thing that's not me any longer, but it, we found each other and I knew I had to attend to it. And that's what happened. I, I wrote the book not too long after I finished my studies and, and now it's, 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 um, It shows up in different places, and I'm really, I, I'm always surprised where it's going to show up. I don't, 
really teach the book so much any longer. I I did for a, about a couple of years. Mm-hmm. But it's people read it, they contact me, they the the book shows up in many different places and it's it's fun to watch. I bet. I've enjoyed reading it. It's a, um, you know, as we were talking while I was setting up, it was, uh, there's a couple of ways that it, um, it brought a lot of things for me to the surface, as I'm sure you've heard from everybody that contacts you. Uh, So I, but let's contextualize this a bit before we go into the book and, and what happens post book. Uh, would you say a little bit about your studies? What that what that was? Because that was a transitional moment for you, moving from one kind of way of being in the world to another way of being in the world. Is that safe to say? <clears throat> Absolutely. And I I picked up the most popular Jungian book at the time, probably the most popular Jungian book ever written still, um, called Women Who Run With the Wolves. Mm -hmm. And it turned on lights for me. And I started, I started noticing my dreams. And then I had a very, a one that, that was disturbed, both disturbing and lingering. And I thought, well, you know, this book talks about these people called Jungian analysts who help you to look at these dreams and and maybe make some meaning out of them. So I found myself one of these strange birds. And I lived in Dallas at the time. So it was in Dallas that I started. And that was... 1995 and I I was already in a program in a program to get a a counseling license in the state of Texas and so as I as I attended my analysis and really was excited about it. I mean, I spent my, my, my life became really peripheral to the analysis and my studies. And I, I went from, as soon as I obtained my license in the state of Texas, I left and went to Zurich. It was, it was the plan. So yeah. What, uh, how did it work out in Zurich? Would you contextualize that also? Because in, some people listening are going to know what that's about, but a lot of people won't. What, is, what does Zurich mean to you? <laughs> well, <laughs> it, oh, goodness. First of all, it was an adventure to me. I really hadn't traveled in the world that much except for short vacations and those kinds of things and so at in the beginning it was I was a bit frightened and 
also curious and ready to find out. And I was about 50 whenever I started that. And it was, it, oh boy, what, it, there's so much to say. What I, what I uh, have said before is I saw myself coming toward me in the fog of Zurich and going there the first thing the very first time I went there it was very very foggy all the time and this it's a it's a cold damp foggy air and it's that way a lot and it was it was the best and the most difficult thing I ever did in my life and of course, the book grew out of that experience, um, and I I put a lot of myself in the book because my I not that it was all that remarkable. It was an example, though, and I thought I could talk about myself as an example better than I could talk about anyone else. So that's how I did it. I'm 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 glad you got there. I'm curious. Was that a was there a conflict there? Did you did you have to work through something about putting so much of yourself in the book or did it just kind of flow out? It flowed out in that way. I realized that I did try to write it without myself in it in a more third person way and it was not going well and it just it it I got so frustrated I couldn't I couldn't write that that's so. actually something that Jeff Kripal and I talked a lot about this how so many authors conceal their experience within the words of the text and I don't know how many times we we know that's happening but I think it probably happens a lot. Uh, I, I, a young analyst I know once said that all research is me-search. And so much of our writing is, it's, I mean, it's coming from us. So we're, we're, of course, interwoven with it. But you know, we kind of, when it comes to feeling vulnerable, people talk at things at such a distance. They really try to put it out there like this. And of course, that affects the way that people then relate with themselves. I just really liked that you did that. And I, I found it served its purpose. It, it becomes a very relatable text. And I, I couldn't help but be just, I was bombarded by so many memories and events in my own narrative that the, the book really ch challenged me in a way to take a look at some of those narratives and bring them to the surface in a new way that was really interesting to me. I've read a lot of this stuff. I mean, I've read all, you know, but this, the, the, your book, it, um, maybe, maybe it was some of that too, because I did find myself relating with your narrative a lot. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because that's what I was trying to achieve. Um, just enough of my own narrative and enough theory 
and enough myth to bring a person into the book in their own with their own reflections yeah it made me feel like it brought this feeling up for me like i felt so many times sitting in class when i was doing my own graduate work with a lot of jungian analysts and sometimes i felt terrified of these things staring down at me in my in my own narrative and started to wrestle with my own history and things I needed to really pick back up on or take more seriously. And when I started reading the book, I, I did it's it's the feeling that I that came to me was this kind of an untethered, you know, I didn't have it was a bit disorienting at first and um, I don't mean that in a kind of a negative way I mean that in a really really good way and that it that freed something up for me to really begin to reflect on on this what we could call like this poetic nature of our our histories and our memories and our experiences and our dreams and uh, reflecting on those things in the way that you're talking about them in the book um, it, it for me it brings up a sense of possibility at the potential to do that more and more um, so I'm, I'm i'm grateful for you being willing to do that because i don't think a lot of people are willing to do that to bring yourself into the work so much to say to that but the work is all of us the collective unconscious as Jung describes it is where we all meet and it's uh it's an en enormously emotional thing to or to realize that place where we all meet, where we are all one. And to me, that's God. And I always feel that if I can create some feeling of solidarity with a person, then we can, we can talk more fluid, fluidly. We can... Um, imagine ourselves in a more uh, in a larger existence together better if we can connect at this place where where the opposites come together and we are all alike in many in the in in those ways in those deeper ways which is, that's something, I haven't spent much time talking to people in this project about collective unconscious. I think people can really misunderstand what's meant by that. Um, you, you may, what you've just said may be sufficient, but I'm wondering if you feel so inclined, could you say a few things about collective unconscious? 
we could think of it as the ground of being. We could think of it as as God, excuse me, as God even. It is that which wants to experience itself through creativity. Through the book, not only were you putting yourself in there, you were bringing in these uh, stories and images and dreams from you know, both yourself but people that you've worked with. And something about you said something about what you said when you were defining the before I asked about the collective unconscious, there's a there seems to be something of a relatability that's found between people, a fluidity about kind of what these images provide. And I think about those kind of patterns that um, that seem to be connecting. There's something connecting about it. And that I think I think that's one of the things you're talking about around oneness, that uh, that there's a feeling of connection, a, a felt a felt sense of connection uh, between within and around people that facilitates an unfolding and a fluidity as opposed to the kind of separateness that that I I, I think of if there's anything. This may be too one sided, but there, if there's anything in opposition to god it would be separateness and frozenness and uh, yeah frozenness you know the inaccessibility um, so it seems like we can kind of maybe define that by something that it that it's not but that's also it and that's when things get a little wonky for people because we yes. we like our nice little packages and <laughs> yes I would say that the only thing separate from God is inattentiveness, and even that brings you brings one back to God eventually. Um, I think nothing is separate from God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I feel if we're thinking about the book or thinking about how these ideas have evolved for you, where does it begin? It begins with the snake. I'm glad you said it. <laughs> Cause that's where I wanted to go. <laughs> and I, I, as a fellow, um, I have a lot of snake motifs in my dreams. Hence another, and also, uh, I've become a, at least a reader of shamanism. And so the, that was a nice surprise in your book, you know, because I just ordered it. I started reading it. And so the snake and the shaman um, and the path, you know, and I think um, we'll, we can get into all those things. But let's start with the snake. What is that? The snake is God. Back to God. <clears throat> First of all, if I see a dream with a snake in it, my first question for myself is, how is God speaking in this dream? What is, what, what is, what, 
is this snake doing in this life? Now, the snake came to me early in life, and in a shamanic culture, a child who was bitten by a snake and then lived over it, although it was a lot more of a miracle for someone to live over it back then than it is now, but... Um, it would be considered significant. And we have, we have lost what the, sh in our culture, in our um, enlightened culture, we have lost what the shaman and the snake meant to people in early, early traditions, in early societies. And cultures and so that is where we we struggle enormously because we don't have a relationship to that other world in early cultures the shaman carried that the shaman lived outside the circle of the of the community because he or she was rather crazy <clears throat> however that person also had a gift and the people whenever they didn't understand what was happening or they wanted to connect better with what was happening to them, they would go and talk to the shaman and get some kind of remedy, of course. And the remedies varied. And interestingly enough, they were pretty effective. Um, but the shaman is is an image of that that person that individual of a community that carries the irrational so that the people can go along with their lives and um, build their houses and educate their children and do the things that and grow their vegetables and 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 their livestock and do everything that they need to do in this world in order to develop as as a um, human being that contributes to the world in their own individual way and our Our distance from that world that the shaman used to represent is the illness of our society, I think. Which is what? What's our illness? 
distance from our, uh, what I would call our true selves, but our irrational side, the side of ourselves that um, that is vulnerable, that is is loving, is appreciative, is um, curious. It's a childlike part of ourselves, playful, creative. It makes me think of a a friend of mine who once told me that they had uh, walked up when at, at a young age, very young, had walked over to the dresser and their father had put down a couple of hits of acid and the child ingested the uh, LSD. And the mother, you know, freaked out. And I'm not, I'm not saying this is something one should do, but I'm using its narrative. The mother took the child to the hospital. And the doctors said something like, ah, this is a state that kids live in all the time. Um, we'll just check vitals, make sure everything's okay. And it was. And regardless of that kind of anxiety that would come up from a parent, that narrative stands out as something that's kind of interesting about the mind of a child who, you know, if there's a fish on the wallpaper, they're talking to the fish in a much different um, <laughs> way of consciousness, you know, way of being in the world. So when we talk about childlike, you know, we, we talk about being in that space. The capacity to uh, to th see things as if they're pregnant and alive, and that we can relate with them on more of a uh, more of a the level of discovery as opposed to dominance, and that's what I I think about when I think about the irrational, and what you're talking about, you know, with um, the mind of a child. And so what, you're, what, what, what I hear you saying is that on some level, because we have to tend to our vegetables and build our houses and educate our children, that tendency and necessity of culture, there is, it enacts a sacrifice on the individual who's seeking to live in that space. And that the shaman is the one who doesn't have to live in that space lives on the outside of the circle and for the group carries that kind of imagistic imaginal fantasy otherworldly attitude and commitment to to be to be within and ready and able to experience the other world in this world is that 
Yes. Yeah. And yes, and then and they also had um, a certain wisdom about it. It wasn't that they were just out there experiencing it. They were carrying it back to the people in a way that they could understand. We desperately need a a religious narrative that takes us more toward something that is um, totally inexplicable, totally almost uh, impossible to imagine. And it's very, very difficult in our culture, in our society right now. We're too, we're, we're too, um, too much caught in the, the surface world. And so allowing the, the world of the depth, the world of our dreams, our imagination to come into this, this surface world that is totally overwhelming already is almost impossible. And we see the effects of this all over the place. I don't even have to talk about that. Um, And how do we accomplish that? I'm not sure, but I, I think that we do have to start with the idea that that in, in the psyche, in this thing that we call unconscious, in that, that place where we get ideas, for one thing, where the the totally creative comes into into being through us and if we're not able to connect with that we cannot go forward we we must have that create that creative spark um, available to us at all times. And we see all kinds of creativity in our world. But right now, it is almost, it's, it almost has to stay be below the surface or quiet. The most creative ideas, the most creative art, music, name it any any field of creativity is is not trusted at first it's the the um,
the initiation, the trials that we have to go through in order to birth an idea in this culture is is unbelievable at times. Whereas if we could be more like children who are are hungry just to just to play and and move and dance and share as far as as much as we've accomplished in civilization at this point i think we would have accomplished even more a lot more Yeah. I, so let's go into your personal snake. Do you mind sharing a bit about that? Not at all. I was around four years old. I was walking from, I was simply walking across the yard and it was Houston, Texas. And it was, uh, getting near fall, I think it was September or so, at least that's what my mother tells me, and I never saw the snake, all I, all, all it, I felt it, and it hurt, it, they, you know, it, it, the, it bit me right on my ankle bone, so it really did uh, hurt, and I, screamed all the way into the house from the mid from mid yard to the to getting into the house I just was screaming and I went and my mom looked took one look at it and there's two perfect little red holes in my ankle and he got she goes oh my gosh that's a snake let's we've got to get <laughs> we've got to go and uh, we lived sort of outside of Houston. And at that time, we, I think it was 1957, we had to get in the car and go to the clinic because the the I don't know that there were ambulances around, but my dad just jumped in the car with me. Mm-hmm. And how did that how does that work itself on you? So then when I decided to get come into analysis, it wasn't the initial dream. The initial dream did not have a snake in it, but very quickly I started dreaming about snakes all kinds of snakes in all kinds of different ways and different dreams of course um, accentuated different mythological motifs of the snake and I didn't quite understand I never quite understood and and this is 
uh, proper, really, but I didn't quite. And I, I always felt like there's that snake again. What is that snake? You know, what does it mean? I, I, as many dreams as I would um, analyze with my analyst, I could, you know, there was, it was always sort of slippery. And, uh, um, so I got curious, more and more curious. And I, and one word that would be used a lot by my analyst, both in Dallas and later in Zurich was initiation. And there would be a snake dream. And then they would say, this is a dream about initiation. And I didn't quite know what they meant by that. And um, books started popping up and jumping into my hands. And I learned what initiation was. And then I thought, well, it's typically, typically initiation is spoken about in a an anthropological uh, way. And I thought, I'm, I don't, okay, what's the connection? And then when I started thinking about, and I was reading, 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 um, Jung's um, description of the flow of psychic energy, I started thinking, well, this is just what is being ex described in these books that I'm reading about initiation and what initiation meant to the early cultures. So I put it all together and it started making a pattern and I, I was caught with it. I was like, this is, this is what's happening. There's, what? Somebody needs to write this. <laughs> Who will it be? <laughs> or or uh, somebody, somebody's probably written this and let me go find it. Yeah. Right, right. And I, I found, as I say, I found, a, and, and somebody had written a lot about it, a lot, lot, lot. And so then I realized, okay, I'm, I must write my part. Yeah. And so I wrote, wrote my little corner of it. I'm glad you did. I think that any author, any person struggles with that, that uh, somebody else has said it somebody could say it better who do i think i am you know then and how many times to people who would have something wonderful to your point earlier to create and they just go right by it and they never wrestle with or get bit by the snake and then follow that thread uh, and then we wonder why we have these unnameable, undiagnosable symptoms um, that we try to treat as opposed to try to penetrate. 
and uh, it, it it really comes across. I can't I can't emphasize enough for anybody listening. I I, I feel I've read I've read a lot of this material. You know, I've, I've read. Um, I mean, it's that's the nature of the academic experience. I got a doctorate. I've read a lot of this stuff. Yeah, this book is really. There's something different. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that I, I read it. So I'll, there's my endorsement you know, for anybody listening. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, please. Um, what can you articulate? What's different? I immediately think about how quickly I was being met with my own, with images from my own history. So I think there was something parallel that was happening in my, in my experience as I was reading your book. So it's, it's not as if on a conceptual level that there were, you know, that I hadn't read about the path or liberation or even investigating shamanic rituals and rites of passage. So for me, what was different was my experience and how quickly I was met with a similar, similar and meaningful narratives that I have been relating with in a different way since reading your book. And, um, so there's nothing, what I, the other thing I think is it may be a little bit more concrete is your willingness to put yourself into it, which I think a lot of people are very careful about doing. It's a vulnerable place. Um, your, uh, I don't know, there was something about an elegant way that you brought people that you've worked with into the, into the book. Um, it didn't, and, there, and it wasn't so academic, heavy, heavy academic. And, um, but, but it was enough. I mean, you really had, you know, ironically, I'm sure somebody would read it and go, oh my gosh, it was like, had an ap- academic feel to it. For me, it was like such a good mixture of those three things. The, the academic component of like, here's what we call the things and here's, here's, Here's a narrative and here's a linear, you know, which I want to get to in a second, which is the, the thing I, I, I liked. And this speaks to what you did rather than say separation, initiation, return. You expanded that even a little bit more. And I think recognized nuances by by making it a path of seven as opposed to three. You have done so in a way that allows for the reader to be met with their own imagistic content as opposed to kind of reading the narrative to learn and see what's in the book i found myself seeing what's in my my narrative and uh so a function of where i am a function of the fact that i was knowing that you and i were going to be talking a function of your writing style, which I found elegant and relatable, 
of a function of you putting yourself into it, of the way you treated those that you brought into it that you've worked with, and your obvious handle on the material. I like that you borrowed from um, shamanism. I like that you borrowed from Jung. I like that you would, uh, there were there were names and references from Nietzsche to Heidegger, you know, that I think were, were uh, propped it up in a way that put it in a lineage of thinkers that I, that I think have been, have done a really good job of treating their material. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's the essence. Um, but, but it, it, you know, again, I just, I can't help but think about my, I guess the first thing you, you There is a certain degree of fear that people are met with, I think, whenever we think about initiation, because we fear losing what we currently have and what the, the kind of comforts of our current existence. And I, I, I don't think, you know, you didn't take the approach of kind of this is good or bad, you know, like somebody kind of following their kind of quote calling is you know, and forsaking some kind of stability in the world is a bad thing. You know, you, I think your attitude with the people with whom you work doesn't presume to know what's right or wrong for the individual. It, it presumes that there's something deeper within the individual that's kind of leading them. And I think that's another thing that really stuck out for me is it feels a bit like when we don't have the, predict the predictable and socially validated means by which we can make sense of our world, things get a bit chaotic. And that's an uncomfortable place to be. So a mixture of you in the way you work with people and also you having been there. And just quite frankly, I related with you a lot. I can't think of anyone who followed their calling or their this path that opened for them during our analysis that it was that it turned out to be really detrimental for them or that they uh, arrived somewhere that in their lives that they that was not good for them or that they considered not good for them but it could happen I think the sometimes and but the the main thing that happens the the thing that happens more often than not and probably every time is that, we are called to do something to to follow a path that seems irrational in the world and that's what happened to me and it's what happens to people invariably when they're they they come to see me they've got certain dreams 
I will ask certain questions and they are always confronted with a, with a dilemma of do I follow this meaning for my life or do I continue in this, this life that is not serving me well? And the, the paths that they're called toward very often are socially unacceptable or <laughs> or not, uh, let's see, not recommended, let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, it's, it can be a path that is is not very secure in the in the in terms of the outer world mm. so so security is uh has to be suspended at least for a time and maybe forever it maybe it has to be dispensed with almost you know i i am a person who I call myself living on the edge. I, but that's how create people who make their way through their own following their own creative impulses will typically kind of live on the edge. They typically don't have, unless the, the, someone has helped them out somewhere along the line, they won't have a a very large retirement plan. They won't. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. So as you said earlier, so many places to go. Yes, it's it's a meandering path in terms of this talking about even talking about the book mm -hmm. as much as I try to pull it together and make it at least a pattern. Mm -hmm. Um. I I sort of forced it into a, a linear a way of speaking of it in a linear fashion. But whenever I talk about it, I like to accentuate the fact that this is not a linear it's it's more circular than anything. And we could all almost think of it as circles that um A series of circles so that you may be in the middle of one initiation initiatory period and beginning another and so in our actual experience and of course in our inner experience 
it's not near that organized. Mm -hmm. And if you want, if you would call the book much organized, because I worked, that was the most work that I did on it, trying to, (laughs) trying to communicate something that was um, really not all that linear. And, and it was more a pattern than a um, a series of steps. Mm. It's a, and I'm glad it's a, I think it's a good op- moment to bring in the seven with the reminder that it's not stages that are linear. That's certainly my experience and it can be very confusing to that part of us that wants to say, oh, I'm right here, here I am, you know, and I'm in this stage. We do that with grief too. I'm, I'm in anger right now and that's okay. Next I'll be uh, lost, you know, and then I'll be, you know, whatever, uh, negotiating or in denial. So the, I want to read these um, if you don't mind. And Not uh, a bit. Then we can kind of blow Thank it up you. and meander. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, seven phases more clearly articulate the psychic process. Number one, an intrapsychic conflict develops. Two, the individual is challenged to contain the tension. Three, a regression of psychic energy ensues, attracted by the tension. Four, unconscious images are activated by the influx of energy. Five, a reconciling symbol emerges out of the images providing the individual with a sense of meaning and purpose. Six, progression of psychic energy canalizes into new activities. And seven, a transcendent function of consciousness brings to the individual renewed ways of being and interacting in the world. And I, I felt so inclined to read it again, but you know, just hit rewind if, if you wanna hear it again. Um, I wanna deconstruct this a little bit. Okay. Um, so an intrapsychic conflict develops. We speak about that a little bit. Conflicts come to us in our lives all over the place, and they may not be altogether intrapsychic. But what can happen is in in the intrapsychic place is this just a feeling of of uh, angst or you're going along in life and you all of a sudden you start or not maybe not all of a sudden you realize that you're you're bored you're not you're not motivated you're and you can't figure out what's wrong you have a job you have a family you have maybe you're around 40 years old maybe you're around 50 years old it the the age doesn't really matter but this is what we've noticed as in a in the business it um Jung noticed that it was at midlife whatever that is and so now at his time he thought of it as being around age 40 and now we say okay well 50 is the new midlife or maybe it's the second midlife or something like that 
But the this, I call it a call because it is an uneasiness that is really inviting us to to take another take a look at at what we've what what's missing in our lives what is it that we've left behind perhaps because our souls have a, there is a soul there is a drive within our psyches or souls that in that wants to become conscious it wants to incarnate that is its its main purpose or motive or and it the, it happens in so many different ways but it begins as an intrapsychic conflict something that 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 cannot be articulated at first only felt and we you know, fix this uh, you know my my take on this is that what we you know kind of the collective we tend to do i think i think that's where a lot of times addictive patterns step in oh right that the addictive patterns come in number 2 actually where the person oh, is challenged to contain the conflict to sit with it to ask themselves about it to look at a dream to write writing as a conversation with oneself and that's not what happens what happens is people feel uncomfortable and they look they do they look for substances very often um, but it doesn't have to be a substance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, shopping and yeah, shopping and suffering and you know, and gambling sure. and um, even exercising and going to church and or going to a thousand different groups. You know, Medi- meditation, <laughs> or, and spiritual practice, and yes, yeah. yes, even that and the and. Um, volunteering and mm-hmm. all of these things that seem beautiful and and thank goodness that we have um, these people in our culture that are so motivated and so energetic it's just that they also have to take care of themselves uh, I went to uh immediately was like struck by about 35 different people in my mind right then who I've, I've shared this kind of conversation with and there's a flight you know I, I, I it, it that that doesn't make sense what are you telling me you you uh, you want me to feel this way like I should I should I should feel pain. I should feel suffering. I should quit my, you know, stop the whatever. Uh, it's so affirmed and validated that um, back to your earlier comment, that, that's an important thread, which is 
kind of how there's a sickness, this collective sickness is it's a collective flight. And from, you know, here we are in, in, in being, you know, I think we, we have to put some kind of container with this because we're communicating about it, you know, and you've got this, these seven things that are important. So here we are at two and we're at this ubiquitous flight that exists in our culture. Imagine that. Yeah, I can. We see it. We do, yeah. Yeah, all over the place. And it's, uh, I think of, oh, look at all the lonely people. Mm. I think your, your comment about writing in a conversation with yourself I've led a retreat for a number of years and I went out at one point and there was a, a person who was kind of dialoguing with themselves and uh, she looked at me and was like, how do I do this? Yeah, and, and it struck me so much that like, yeah, we, we don't know how to do that. How to have a conversation with ourselves. We write to, to you. I write to you. Communicate to you or vent, you know, kind of dear diary. So-and-so did this to me. And it's, it's not the, which is fine. I'm not, that's, that's got its place, but it's certainly not a conversation with oneself. When I was little, I had, I was always talking to myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I had this, I mean, I called her by my own name. I, it was, but it seemed like in my young mind, something other. Yet I called her Kathy, which is what my family called me back then when I was little. And I talked to her all the time. I would tell, I would refer to her, you know, Kathy wants a drink of water or something. But it was, I was very well aware as a child that I was, when I said her name, which seemed like I was talking about myself. I was talking about something else that was invisible to me. And that is what, that is to me a good example of how do we communicate with ourselves? Well, we ask first i mean what is it that you want nietzsche did that know what you want and that you want wait this is the um the human is too i think more that's what kripal calls it you know the human is too i think and he would he he would write it's really a multiplicity it's not a it's not just you know me and that guy inside of me who are having a conversation. No, it can be like a 
King Arthur and the Round Table. I use that all the time. I love that image. It's, that's the that that is a f- perfect image, almost. Um, yeah. I would say is perfect image, because everyone should have an equal say. Yeah. The the psyche is. Um, Human beings are quite complicated, but there is a um, there is a chorus of voices, a chorus of of different. Um, different developments and if you see a a play for instance and you see a good play in in or or you read a good novel where the characters are developed you see this how this development pulls together to to form a story and so each one of us is a, a novel, a story of different characters and their different um, their different aspirations. Competing desires mm-hmm. at times. Oh, absolutely. We have our professional life and our family life and our creative life, and all of these could be imaged by a different image mm-hmm. in the psyche. And yet each one of those is of highest importance to us so it seems like what these aspirants you know for lack of a better image inside of us are uh, our round table it seems like in in the book and what you're getting at with initiation and liberation is that there are parts of us that are actively trying to initiate us into a larger life into a larger way of being or a more a way of being more rooted in our kind of unique purpose is that a how would you say that I the word purpose always dis, disturbs me. It seems too teleological. But it's to be seated in our own unfolding. 
I guess I would say it's it's not a there's there's not a good exact exactly a good word um, seated in our own phenomenology if you want to put uh, it that I, way. Actually, I, I, thank you. I really like the unfolding. You you framed it poetically. And um, I see pictures before I speak. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, appreciated. Unfortunately, no. It's, it, makes a hell of a lot of sense to me so but I guess the essence of this is that we we're really avoiding discomfort I think part of the human condition is that we avoid discomfort and I think one thing that you're getting at is that in avoiding our discomfort we're avoiding the way in which we're beckoned into, one of the ways in which we're beckoned into being seated in that unfolding. And-, and Because the, we're not comfortable there. Yeah. We don't know how to, uh, just like you were telling me about the woman who didn't know how to communicate with herself uh-huh. it's it's uncomfortable and it is uncomfortable to sit to sit in the seat of ourselves until we have relaxed and there is a point which it's perfect and we see it we feel it we have a what we might Jung called it a religious experience. We have a spiritual God experience. We have a a uh, LSD experience, and that's that is what will swoop us up and carry us forward with with courage that's where the courage is so I, i'm in getting a bit and i'm sensitive to time we've got a few minutes in, oh in get <laughs> in uh, in thinking practically um, so i come into your office and i sit down and i say you know whether it's it's work you know i'm I've got all this debt and I, I'm feeling like the crash, it's going to crash down around me. And, um, but I can't do this job anymore. It's, I hate it. And, you know, I'm scared because I've got these obligations kind of in this stream of, of obligation and, um, I'm confused. How do you, in your work with people, how do you begin to help somebody discover or connect with not only the path, but the courage to endure the discomfort and hold the tension? First, we must look at the dreams 
at the imaginal content. If those, typically those are dreams, but they can be different. They can be different experiences, um, inexplicable, ineffable experiences that someone has had. And there are the practical parts of you're in debt, sell what you can, pay off as much as your, of your debt as you can, and let's look at where your life wants to go from here. Where does, where does this incarnation that is you want to go from here? What does it want to produce? What is it produces the wrong word? What does it want to express? And I've never seen it fail in terms of uh, giving people a an encouragement. In now we're using that word again. In encouragement oh, I, I, teleological is such a buzzword I say it I read it I wrote it um, mm-hmm. what's your take what's I mean, rather rather than going into the progressive or you know goal oriented way of being, I'm assuming that you would kind of toss that prescriptive way of being out. Not out. Yeah. But it is. It it's too overarching in our culture. Yeah. And everything in these process, in these, in our development of of a, as of an as being individuals, it is so difficult to talk about. But everything has to be both and. Mm-hmm. There you there's there has to be a marriage of the teleological and the phenomenological. You when whenever you if if you're the, the image or example that comes to mind is someone who's going to paint a picture and they have this idea and they can, they have something of an idea. They have a canvas in front of them, yet it is the phenomenology, the each second and millisecond of brush stroke that brings this image into being. And so they both have to be engaged in the little brush strokes and they also have to keep that that image in mind, that mm-hmm. idea even though it may look completely different when they get done with it 
than it did when it was first sparked. Yeah, that's nice. I like that a lot. Um, so I think that if we begin with the snake, we've probably got to end with the snake. So I, I'm, you created a ritual out of that. Yes. Yeah, and it even became, I know that you and Rodney did work together with tattoos. That's one of the things that I said to, when I interviewed Rodney, I said, you know, we got a lot in common where we study these things and we, I've really enjoyed your work with that kind of ritual where you find a way to kind of mark the experience. And that was your first, wasn't it? Yes, it's my only one still. Um, and not that I won't ever get another one because I don't know. And it's very possible. The, what I told Rodney um, probably a month or two or three after getting the tattoo, I told him that I realized that this, this image on my leg seems to always have been there. That, that this tattoo was simply bringing into, um, into sight, which something that seemed to be right underneath the skin. And I was, I was amazed at that. I, I was, cause you know, getting a tattoo is always, for me was always, what if I get tired of that thing being on me? And there has been not one tiny moment of feeling like I wish that thing were not there. I love it. It is it always gives me a feeling of of energy and a feeling of meaning whenever i contemplate it wow so that you're uh, there's a snake on kate's foot mhm mm yeah <laughs> yeah Yeah, thanks. Thank you for sitting with me and taking me through this experience. But thanks for also writing this book. It was, I'll turn back to it again and again. Thank you, John. Mm -hmm. I'm honored. <laughs>